RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Our baby Gunner Kennels. Man, one of the things that I love about Gunner Kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies. Old Buck, he hangs out in a gunner kennel when he goes to and fro. And in his, we've got the ortho pad. He's got the old joints. And, and even if your dog's not old like Buck, you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit. So the ortho pad, super huge. If you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit, maybe chew a little bit, that performance pad is going to be clutch as well. So check it out. It's the full kit brought to you by Gunner Kennels, always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe. Sliding the dms if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner kennel it's force fetch baby it's the number one question we get asked you don't know how to fix it let me help you let me get you to your goals we built a course bunch of videos i think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully the link's in the description be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog There's so many things that that you do when in the heat of the moment, and there's so many things that you don't do because you don't have the education to to know what to do. The most basic things, the most successful people in my game, that's what they focus on, not the most complex things. It's really the precision of the simplest things, and it's you know healing mechanics, uh, bird delivery. I'm I'm a big stickler on what I call the first look. It's the technique of having the dog lined up, looking at the next bird when they retrieve the previous bird. Welcome back, Mr. Pat Burns. Got to finally meet you in person at the Master National. And that was such a cool experience. You know, we've had a few episodes together on here. And so to finally shake your hand was was pretty cool. And to get to meet you and have you see our Master National was a great experience. Welcome back to the show. How you been? I've been great. I tell you, I have, I've had a great fall and uh, I feel the same. It was great to meet you and in person. And we got to talk a little bit about that first series you were running. And I'm excited about going to the super retriever series championship, going to the master national, meeting some new people and watching some great dog work. Absolutely. Couple quick shout outs. I'd like to hit real quick. Adam and Jimmy are good friends at the dog house podcast. They brought their equipment and did a live interview with you. If anyone hasn't listened to the Doghouse podcast with you, I would highly recommend, you know, going and tuning into that episode. And then you did something really cool on your YouTube channel. So if you could just tell everyone where they could find your YouTube channel, and then we'll kind of talk about what you did and shared with everybody. Well, it's the Elite Retrievers YouTube channel. And I did some interviews at the Master National. I still have some stuff in the can that I need to put together and put out there. But 
Well, I interviewed you. You told me a little bit about your strategy in that first series. I went around and met a bunch of people that were, some were running their first Master National. It was a great experience. There's a lot of material on our YouTube channel, and there's more being loaded all the time. A lot of it is very educational. Some of it's just intended to be entertaining. Check that out and check out the EliteRetrievers.com website. You, you can find out a lot of information, and, and there's a lot of free stuff there available, as well as some courses. Yeah, and we'll dive into that more later on, but I did want to give a shout out to the YouTube channel because not only did you interview me, you interviewed a lot of other folks that dissected the strategy behind the flight and their series. And so what you got from me was different than what you've got from someone else in a different flight and where the wind was and the factors. And there was a theme. We always talk about the national has a theme. And for us, I would say it was everybody had to do, maybe not everybody, I, I'm going to guess, but most of the folks I talked to had a remote set, which didn't get as many people as they, I think they thought they would. Mm -hmm. Poison birds, I think we had two different sets of poison birds in different series. One was under the arc, which we talked about in the YouTube. Yeah. And the wind, when we were running, it was blowing from that poison bird to the line to the blind, which made it pretty dang tricky and got some dogs out. It put some people out. So it was a tough one this year. I also felt like they judged it very strict. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a standard. And if the dog doesn't uphold the standard, you know, you're out. But I feel like years past, it's a cumulative score, right, Pat? It's if you have X amount of points, and you're close, maybe you get to roll into the next series and see if you rebound. And if you don't rebound, now you're done. And I did not feel like there were chances for some rebounds where 95% of the dog work was very good, 5% was mediocre, and that mediocrity got you out instead of, well, let's play. So did you see any of that? Did you hear rumblings of that? Well, there were some very challenging tests. Now, that first series theme of a flyer memory bird with a short bird related to that flyer has always been an incredibly difficult situation, difficult marking scenario. Some of them were incredibly tight where the dog had very little room to hunt. So, and then some of them, it, the flyer was, wasn't quite as related to the other bird that you were trying to pick up. And it was typically a short bird that people were trying to pick up before they picked up the flyer. So the themes were the same, but obviously the terrain, the cover was different in different places. Some places the grass was very short and some there's uh, the Bahia grass is what that's called down there. It's right. a warm season grass like Bermuda and it is thick. And in the fall, birds are hard to find in it. And the fields that had the Bahia really proved to be more difficult. The one, one series, for example, the dogs had as much trouble finding the flyer as they did anything else. I appreciated that level of difficulty. And when I, I applaud them for keeping the title of passing that master national so prestigious, mm -hmm. because it is, it's a quite an honor. And so the test certainly dictated that. And they were more difficult than I expected to see. Really? Yes. Yeah. I knew they were going to be short and kind of tricky, but the the theme was very much like you might see in a field trial or, you know, over the history of field trials, 
certainly at a shorter distance, mm -hmm. but still quite difficult. And I think these a lot of these marks and setups were a little bit longer than they were in years past. Am I correct with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like for me, not, I'm knocking on some fake wood here on my desk. We worked all the group that I took to the national are all dogs that I've ran qualifying field trials with. Right. And so they are comfortable going at longer distances. And so 140, 165 is the long bird at the hunt test, but it wasn't anything that they hadn't seen done and been comfortable and confident doing right. where I do think some folks I mean, it was talked about in the gallery, like, boy, next year, I'm really going to stretch mine out and have a better balance between long distance and short, because there were dogs that just weren't comfortable punching out past shorter birds to go out and find that long bird. When those grounds are, you know, ridiculously good in that part of the country, I, that's where I spend half the year. And you were on Charlie and Yvonne Hayes' property. Yeah. And it's a beautiful piece of property and all those properties they ran on are spectacular. So, Oh, one thing that I did want to talk to you about because I always find it super interesting is first off the famous people in our industry, mm -hmm. you're in there. Mike Lardy's in there, mm -hmm. you know, Ray vote. That's where all everyone else comes. And then I, and so maybe some other people that you could name, that's their Mecca. That's their home grounds that they're fortunate enough to train on all the time. And then also the special dogs that are like the classic stud dogs. Like we, we were training or running at Snappers home. Yeah. Everybody who's got a Fox Red Lab, I feel like has a little bit of Snapper in there, you know, or in Chester. Yeah. And he certainly goes back to Marathon Man, which was further back. And, you know, that was Charlie's, not his first one. Charlie, Charlie and Yvonne Hayes are you, some of the most iconic people in the field trail sport ever. I actually, I won my first open ever under Charlie Hayes oh. and that would have been 1984. So that's a long time ago. And Charlie had been in the game a long time, but marathon man, I think is ranked in the top five retrievers in AKC history. And Charlie won the national with a dog named Toby. I think it was PB super Toby. Well, there's another famous one, mm -hmm. Steve Yozamp, who won a national a few years back, trains right there, of course, all Mike Lardy, and my good close friend, Andy Attar, is, that's his home ground. So there's a tremendous amount of national field champions and great dogs, and, you know, great dogs of every, from every venue that have trained in that South Georgia area. Charlie Hayes said one time, and this was probably 10 years ago, that in a 50-mile radius of that area, there are 40 different properties from 100 to 1,000 acres developed specifically for retriever training. So okay. you take that kind of incredible development of grounds and a great climate and uh, for winter training. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not so much for summer training. And uh, you've really, you've, you've got a formula for, you know, just an exciting dog atmosphere. And, you know, that whole plantation culture down there embraces sporting dogs with the poil hunting. There's a tremendous amount of high-end bird dog pointer trainers in that area as well. So it's really a breeding ground for field trial dogs from all different venues, pointing dogs as well as retrievers.
Yeah, I definitely felt a sense of nostalgia being there. I'd never been. I just, I felt like I was in the homeland of where all the greats have been entrained, you know, thinking about water blinds that someone else might have picked out and ran Grady and Lean Mac and, you know, Dogs that every yeah they've all been there they've all probably ran trials there and and they've been swimming in the same ponds that my dogs are swimming in and you're just like man this is that's pretty cool this is bad to the bone and i felt the similar thing when i went to a purina summit this summer and we went up to nilo farms and nilo farms was owned by john olin the winchester family mm-hmm. and king buck was a is a famous i think he's the only retriever that's ever been on the federal duck stamp if i'm not mistaken i think you're right but i stood there cotton Perschel was the famous trainer from back then and that was right before my time well king buck was in the 50s mm-hmm. but i stood there just like you said i wonder what water blind king buck ran here you know and i because these those were the grounds and there was a statue and i i you can just feel their presence and yeah. uh, so that's cool yeah it's spe- definitely was a special time and a special place and then like the pre-training, you know, pre-training for those things is some of the most fun, right? Always. And we were, I bet every single day we'd get to the grounds and go, wow, like this is beautiful. And then damn, we've got to throw shorter stuff and we've got to, we're not training. They already know what to do. You're just making sure that it all stays tight and all and composed and whatnot. Where we'd stand there and be like, "Man, if only we could had time to do." Oh my gosh, what if we went over here? Excited, seeing what possibilities there are. Yes, and then it's like, well, I guess we're gonna do one here, one there, and uh, you know, building confidence. Yeah. So it, but it just was an unbelievable experience. We got to train on Judy Rasmussen's property. So that was Red Dog. That was down in the right. Yeah, it was, I think we were the East Annex. Is that what it was referred to as? Yeah. So you're, if you can all close your eyes unless you're driving, (laughs) a absolutely gorgeous pond in this little bit of a bowl with rolling hills of different cut pasture grass and live oaks. And it's just like Southern beauty at its finest. With the Spanish moss hanging from the trees, it, it's yeah. just a sleepy kind of atmosphere. Yeah, it's truly fantastic. And Judy's done such a great job of keeping those properties in a natural state. The ponds, yeah. some lily pads, they're not just technically groomed ponds like on a golf course. No. Absolutely right. That's a great way of putting it, too. They're they're natural looking. They're not tech ponds. They have points and fingers and this is and that's, but it looks like it's been there for a hundred years. And that just, that totally, you know, I, the dogs act differently that way. And I, and, and for me, I enjoy training on that kind of stuff. I mean, I grew up a hunter and I love birds in the water. I love birds thrown in the water. I like the courage factor of dogs having to fight some, you know, go through some over logs, through some yeah. lily pads. And to me, that's the ultimate in testing courage and perseverance. Absolutely. Lead. Mm, you thought I was going to say bismuth. I switched it up on you. Hey, get you and your buddies prepared for duck season, just like you're preparing your dog. Seven and a half by Kent. Go to the clay bird course. Go to sporting clay course. Get right so that you can knock more birds down with that bismuth this duck season. 
From the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. Our young dogs are eating the puppy blend. Large breed puppy formula should be fed to puppies from eight weeks when you get that little bundle of joy home, that little cuddly wuddly buddy, all the way to about a year old. We want that dog to develop at a good, consistent rate. We don't want them to grow too fast, too soon. And so that puppy formula is going to help accomplish that goal. It's going to give them all the nutrients to develop their bones, their joints, their ligaments, everything right. Feed that puppy formula till 12 months old and then flippity-floppity to the 30-20 Pro Plan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get into, so you also had the opportunity to commentate the Super Retriever series. So if you haven't listened to Michael Demmer's episode, that was, you know, maybe three episodes back, four episodes back, Michael was one of the judges, and they brought you in to help commentate alongside Jay Paul and... David Hamilton was the other, you know. Yes, yeah, yep. Give us that experience. Was that your first SRS? Yes, absolutely. I had I had watched a little bit of it, talked to some people that did it, you know, had some old colleagues uh, from the past that I saw com- competed in it. Jerry Day, who yeah. judged it last year, is a, I've known Jerry. I, I certainly would call him a close friend. So I was excited to go. And well, I, I mentioned it about the Master National. I was equally overly impressed that more impressed than I thought I was going to be. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but start to finish the, well, the judges, Michael and the other Jamie and trying to think the third judge, but all great guys. Was it Gino or? Yeah. I shame myself for not remembering everybody's name because it's hard. I'm with you. They were fantastic. They, I came out to kind of see the setup and they welcomed me, talked about their tests. Ask my opinion. You know, what do you think? Is this is a bird work? I mean, would you, what would you do if you were here kind of thing? It was a very welcoming atmosphere. And I thought their, their tests were very challenging. I, I, I just wrote a blog on my experience that I posted and the Retriever News is, is, is going to post a similar article that I wrote on that exact experience. Very and cool. So I, I gave it a thumbs up. I mean, there were things that took some getting used to, some different things they did. But when I, when, well, for example, their one field trial test they did, they had, and the bird placement and everything was typical of what you might see in the first series of an opener and amateur. But they put out a decoy gun, mm-hmm. a, a, a mannequin and a white jacket as an additional distraction that made me say, hmm, am I okay with this? But when I watched the dogs and I watched the dogs that I thought, well, it's probably not what you, it's not conventional in the world of field trials, but it was the same for everybody. And I thought when I watched dogs that performed well on that test, they dealt with that. Um, There was some, well, one of the first things that kind of blew me away 
was the ability not so much just to talk to your dog on the line while the birds were going down, which, okay, I was okay with. They allowed you to use a verbal here in exchange for a come and whistle. Okay. And I thought the first time they did it, I thought, why is that guy picking up? Why is he? Well, he wasn't picking up. He was actually just bringing them in. Sure. And the fact that it was okay and legal, I thought, all right. And I and it, I thought of that a long time ago. I said, well, wait a minute. We can use a verbal over. We can use a verbal back. Why can't we give the other directional cast in the, with a verbal? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem with that. But it was, at first, it took me off guard. Sure. Uh, the combination of how they did the hybrid tests were cool. And their key birds that I would have called, you know, field trial quality marks that were long and really challenging. And not all of them were that long. The first series was a beautifully designed short hip pocket, very much like what you might have had in your master national, but at a greater distance mm-hmm. where you had a longer bird and a shorter bird thrown right underneath them in the hip pocket. Mm-hmm. Then you pulled off and ran a hard blind. I mean, it would have, it was a keyhole blind with a crosswind and you had to be on your toes and then come back and pick up two memory birds. I said, this would hold up in any field trial and be hard. It's got uh, some meat on the bone. Oh, it absolutely did. Now I just, it was, I guess I likened them throwing the Avery true birds to training with bumpers. Mm-hmm. They weren't feathers, but once again, I didn't see the dogs. I mean, they were animated. It wasn't like they weren't as excited. Now you shoot a live rooster flyer. It's, you know, it's a, they're, they're going to act differently, sure. but I don't think it took away from the event. And the one thing that really struck me that made me think this is more doable for the average guy. You can train in places using Avery true birds that you couldn't train on the golf course that we were on. You couldn't have been shooting live flyers out there. Sure. And the average guy who doesn't have access to a bird pen or birds or his wife won't let him or husband won't let him <laughs> put live dead birds in their in their freezer in their basement. You mean they don't have three chest freezers like I do? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it makes that's it more doable. World. I thought, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Good thing. So uh-huh. I got a question for you. And it's mildly controversial. Okay. I feel like back in the day, and I have I haven't, I guess I've ran one SRS, and it's been probably three or four or maybe even five it's years. It's been longer than that since you ran it. Yeah, it's been a while. But I felt like back in the day, and maybe it's not so much anymore, so I could be talking on my butt, but the true blue field trialers, they don't come and try it. Not and yet. I, not yet. I wonder why. And then do you think we might see some of those folks, especially maybe if you're sort of uh, uh, keep commentating and, you know, drawing some people in, like, you know, I'd love to see Ray Vogt go up there and knock it out and see those guys, see what they do against Steve Endurance. Because you got Clark, Steven, Lyle, Luke Coor, now Carter Turner, you know, that crowd is continuously in the top five all the time. And it'd be neat to see someone else come in and say, step over, boys, step aside. I, I was impressed with those guys. And and I'll tell you what, I made a couple calls to fellow professionals and I said, you're lucky some of these guys don't dive into field trials because they're the real deal. And, uh, you know, because they would, if, if they put as much that their focus on winning field trials, they would win. I mean, they were 
I saw a lot of good dog handling there and good dog people. Now, you, the, my first exposure was this summer when I was in Mondovi, Wisconsin, which I go every year and I work with Laura Parrott. Mm -hmm. Laura won, can't remember, won a national. She was the second woman to win a national championship. And with Willie, Luciana's fast Willie, and Laura said, started asking me about the SRS. Well, before I even got, was even approached. And she said, I'm thinking about, they, they came out here and ran here. And she's had uh, one of her dogs has that she sold has done pretty well. And I think, can't remember who runs it. But Laura started paying attention. She said, she's been asked to judge one. And she said, I'm going to run some of these. Cool. And I said, cool. And I And that really made me perk my ears up because- I, you know, uh, I totally respect John and Laura and Laura's a dedicated, great dog person. And if she is interested, I said, I'm going to take another look at this. And I'm really glad I did. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to see some people do it. And I don't think they even appreciated the quality of the event. And just the coverage was in spectacular, you know, not, and I'm not talking about me being able to talk. I'm talking about <laughs> cameras yeah enabling us to see stuff to be able to talk about yeah no i think I, i've been to pepper's pond it wasn't the crown but it was you know a big one for them and shannon brought the van and the booms and the this is and it was 100 as if you were on tv i mean it was tv quality sound system camera work where the camera guys were placed i mean everything was done to a T and I just think that it would be neat. And and I guess the question I'll bring it back is like, why are not, why aren't less field trialers dabbling? I think old habits die hard. They get in a tradition and they, they follow the same norm. They run the same field trials. They have a, changing a routine is hard for people, yeah. but it takes a little bit of exposure and maybe a few words from somebody maybe like myself that stepped in there and said, Hey, this was a cool deal. You guys might want to consider it. And the other thing is, you know, there's a pretty serious cash prize in these things. And I said, wow, yeah, you know, so there's a motivation to do something like that. Cause there's a, it's not just a, an honor and a pewter mug. It's a hefty check. Yeah, absolutely. Cool stuff there as well. Yeah, you I think get it was, you out in there, mixing it up a bit. Who me? Yeah, I mean you'd lose, but <laughs> but if there's a cash prize, <laughs> well, thanks for the faith, Kev. Yeah, but I'm not mistaken. Now I could be wrong. I I need to maybe double check this, but I think the winner got a thirty thousand dollar check. I don't know the number, but that would help me a long way, Pat. <laughs> I mean, they gave a boat away. I mean, it was like it was. That's pretty and cool. And I'll tell you what, I the one thing I did do is I called the, the chairman of the National Retriever Club and I said, you guys need to look at the, the way these guys promote this, how they get their sponsorships. And you're trying to keep your game alive. I said, you're missing something here. And this coverage that they're doing, you ought to consider. I, I agree. I, yeah, I agree. I think Shannon does a phenomenal job. I hope she listens to this episode with me, brown nosing her. Hey, Shannon. <laughs> and the whole thing was top notch. It was terrific. And uh, I really think what it would have to happen, Pat, is like you get a couple people in and you're all going to spend a fun weekend going and doing it. So it's not someone who doesn't, they walk in and they don't know anyone. It'd be like three or four guys and gals that are training buddies that 
instead of going to an open, you know, they don't have anything that weekend and they're going to go somewhere and see how they muster. And for the month before they, they throw ATBs and, you know, check them down and shoot like HRC style over their FCs, you know, and just say, Hey, let's go kick their ass. And I think if they <laughs> all kind of banded together to go have fun, you'd start to see like that four folks that did it, they would tell their four folks and you just would, it would, the dynamic of the SRS would change because the same top five, 10 guys are the same top five, 10 guys for the last five, 10 years. Well, I didn't see anything they did that I thought would be detrimental to the career of a field trail dog. It may confuse them. Do you think that's partially why people don't do it? Do I think what, that they think it might be detrimental? Yes. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, some people think it's detrimental to hunter dog. I, I, I couldn't do, I I totally disagree with that. I think the more things you expose them to, the more well-rounded they're going to be. And I say that to people that come train with me and are running hunt tests. I said, don't limit yourself. You're, you know, you expand these dogs' brains. You don't have to play and scrimmage like what your event is day in and day out. Your, Your dogs are going to be better when they expose and you broaden their horizons and their brains. And uh, I think back in the day, they would handle a whole heck of a lot more on marks and not get dinged as much. And so people would handle it. It was a very much handling game and then playing the when to handle, when not to handle. And so, I mean, I definitely thought that, you know, I, I thought, boy, I'd end up handling a bunch and I didn't want to do that. And now the the rules have changed and the point structure has changed to where it's still truly a marking dog's test. And if it needs to handle, it better be a good handle. Yes. And that's the way our game used to, to be honest with you. I mean, there was a time where a long hunt was scored worse than a reasonable mark that ended up handling quickly. So I did expect them to not promote dogs being good thinkers. And, and I was totally wrong in that perception. I watched I watched some dogs and Carter Turner had a couple that made some incredible recoveries. And you could watch those dogs thinking. And I said, well, this is going to be the real test for me because that's the situation that I thought was wonderful from the dog's perspective that I thought maybe they weren't going to appreciate their value. And they absolutely did appreciate the value. Those dogs were rewarded for smart, intelligent hunts. And the dogs that had to handle most of the time weren't going to recover anyways. So that wasn't any different than an, our national championships are more like that than more so than the weekend field trials. You've got to be able to know when it's time to handle to survive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, there's been many nationals won by dogs that handled. So I likened it to that a little bit. So I thought it was that combined with the transparency and scoring. Mm-hmm. And I thought the way you made, they made cuts made perfect sense. Okay. You could go to the top 18, 12, six. It wasn't, did you have a good last series? It was whether you agreed or not with the scoring they gave, it was, it was clear cut. And there was no wondering why you got dropped. Very cool. Because it was right on the big board. And so I thought there were some really cool things to that. And so I enjoyed it. And I, you know, I look forward to possibly doing it again. Yeah. I enjoyed your commentary and Carter Turner and I were sitting back 
BS and during the national, he was in our flight and actually he's on the, he's on an episode later tonight. And so after yours airs, his will air. And he was saying he was listening to you commentate while other people were running. He's like, dang, all right, I'm going to do something a little different. How? You know, you're kind of, so your addition to the SRS for me and others that respect the heck out of you was valuable knowledge wise, ex, you know, explaining what the dog's doing and what it's not doing and why that person handled and didn't handle. I, I thought was extremely valuable and I would wholly support you being back on there next year. Yeah. Well, we're working on the details and, you know, it's just a matter of freeing up a schedule and making it work. Uh, what I'm going to do is there's a few series and situations that I thought were really valuable that I'm going to download that footage and try to include it in a learning opportunity. And I want to show some of the, you know, I, I talked to the National Retriever Club chairman and I said, I want you to look at this. I want you to see what's possible. Yeah. And if you want to promote art, the sport that, that, that you do and I grew up with, if you don't do something like this, you're missing out. Another great way to support the show, and if you dig it and you want to rep it, it's LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We got hats, t-shirt, hoodies, all that good stuff. Even if you got a little lone duckling, a little baby on the way, you can get that onesie, as cute as can be, little kid's gear. But we've also got other things like bumpers, launchers, e-collars, anything you need to train a dog, you can find it at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We're here to supply you so that you and your dog can get ready for duck season. One of the questions that I had for you before we started was, you know, you've, you've gotten to watch and train with and compete against the best in the country. Mm -hmm. And, and again, the legends of our sport, when you came and watched the master national and when you commentated the SRS, what are some things that you took away both good and bad in the handling of dogs? Well, I guess, first of all, you know, your first series had a lot of, was pretty complex, not just, it was complex in the instructions. And there were, you know, friends of mine and a number of people that I talked to that forgot the instructions. They got caught up in the excitement of the moment and didn't, and went out on a mental error. And I've watched that happen in, in our nationals. And so it's one of the things that I work hard on when I coach people is, you know, that there's nothing worse than going out of an event because you forgot the order of a situation or what your instructions were. So some of those things happen there, but they happen on every level. And it's it, it just takes me back to something I was taught a long time ago, that these dogs are only going to be as good as we are. So the first step is to take our mental errors out of the game. So you certainly saw some of that. Now, when you looked at, there were a lot of people that this was really some of their highest level and they were very excited and they, they, they hurried up and they were, you know, they sped thing, they sped their, their process up instead of slowing it down. Like you need to do. Um, I just, I think that sometimes uh, some of the hunt tests don't require the precision and it maybe allows people to be a little sloppy, but when you get to that level, you pay for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I really, I really want to bridge the gap between all these sports because we're all in this together. And I see such a similarity with 
you know, whether you wear a camouflage jacket or a white jacket, whether you blow a duck call or it's, those are, that's the bells and whistles. That's the whole deal is, can they mark? Are they under control? Do they do the things that great hunting dogs need to do? They need to, they need to use their brain. They need to have courage and perseverance. You need to have control. They need to understand the rules around the water. Uh, and, you know, so how you package it isn't any different in any of these sports. Now, it's taken to the extreme because in the world of field trials, because the dogs in training have gotten so good, but it's still the same stuff. Um, and so I think it's, I think, but some of the most fundamental things that have nothing to do with whether it's a field trial, a hunt test, or an SRS, I think are overlooked. And I think. Uh, can you give it examples of, so such a, like you, the one example was people were too fast. I'd agree with that. They'd get into a predicament and all of a sudden, you know, their whistle sounded different. It sounded scared. <laughs> um, their casts got quick, but, but can you dive into some of those things that you saw? Well, I think the fundamentals, right. I mean, I'm such a stickler on, uh, I call it the five foot circle. Now we call, you know, field trials today, they call it the mat, but it's the line. It's that zone where that dog is next to the handler and the communication that goes on. And uh, so I think that there were, there's a lot of things that happen that um, would be greatly improved by a lot of focus put on better line mechanics, uh, better healing mechanics, uh, uh, better communication between the dog and handler, a more consistent uh, uh, vocabulary and technique. Um, you know, there's so many things that that you do when in the heat of the moment, and there's so many things that you don't do because you don't have the education to to know what to do. Sure. So um, I just feel some of those mo the most basic things, the most successful people in my game, that's what they focus on, not the most complex things. It's really the precision of the simplest things, and it's you know healing mechanics, uh, bird delivery. I'm, I'm a big stickler on what I call the first look. It's the technique of having the dog lined up, looking at the next bird when they retrieve the previous bird. In other words, so their fix and focus is where they're going next. And so the sometimes the sloppiness in the delivery mechanics and the argument about trying to heal and move detracts from the dog's memory. So I saw a lot of that and, and you see it you see it at all levels, but it was a little more profound there. So that are that's probably when I coach people that are entry level transitioning in hunt test and want to be better at any of these sports. That's where I start. I start with line mechanics. And one of my other big things is red zone handling. It's the it's and I call red zone the the last 10 percent of a blind. It it. it it's where the dog thinks they're there and they're more apt to go self-employed. And it's where handlers don't know where the wind is. Don't pay attention to where the dogs, you know, don't identify the danger zones. They hope instead of, instead of managing things properly, they're reactive and not proactive. So I, I think challenging yourself and doing harder blinds than you expect to do to improve your, handling mechanics and your red zone technique. In other words, you're going to, your stopping mechanics have got to be better. 
that's when they start to erode. And so more control at the end of blinds. And one way to do that is to just challenge yourself with, with longer and more and, and tougher endings. You know, so many people, they want to put such a white visible object at the end and the dog gets in the last 10% and he's looking for the blind. They're, they're starting to hunt like they almost would be on a mark. Well, when they're in that state of mind, they're not going to handle. They're looking for the, they don't want your help anymore. So identifying that kind of stuff, I think would go a long way in success. And so many people want to almost make the dog think he can see the bird when they send on a blind. I don't want, I, the most important thing when I send on a blind is establishing the state of mind to run a blind, not the anticipation that I think I know where the blind is. It's about the handler has the wheel. And once they, if they leave the line and maintain that thought, the retrieve is only what happens at the end of the blind, not from the minute they leave the line. And so it's just a state of mind and thinking it in a certain way and, you know, getting comfortable telling dogs where to go instead of always asking them where to look, you know, and I talk about that in the, that that's establishing that, that disciplined state of mind at the beginning of the blind retrieve and sometimes on marked retrieves when the type of mark requires a disciplined state. I always say A-S-H-E, attitude comes first then the spine alignments, then the head, then the eyes. So I want to focus on the state of mind I want to create in between their ears prior to every retrieve. But on a blind, I want to, people are sometimes more worried about getting them to look in the right direction instead of getting their anticipation of what they're about to do psychologically. And if you looked at it that way, it, it, and it's hard for people because they always want to use marking style cues to get a dog to look out on a blind and you're undermining your efforts half the time. Does that so make sense? It makes sense to me. So what are some things that you do to create that with your dogs as you're teaching blind retreats? I mean, it's communication, right? Sure. I mean, you know, you're initially you're doing pattern blinds and the dogs do know the destinations and you're trying to get them comfortable and you're promoting momentum. But, well, one of the things we're going to be doing, we're going to talk about here in a little bit, is uh, my typical off-season, winter-season training regimen. And it starts out with doing some complex no drills, some uh, 8, 16, and 32-leg style lining drills, wagon wheels, where there's a lot of fine-tuning that goes on, on on the line. And the dog has to learn to trust you and believe that you know where they're going when they don't know where they're going and they need to get comfortable with that. And, and the classic no-no drills where you line over brush piles, but it leads into a, a, one of my favorite things to do in January. It's a tradition is a, is a complex land tune-up drill, but I do a lot of things prior to that to prepare them for it. And land tune-up, the one we'll do, will have seven blind retrieves and it'll take 20 to 25 minutes to complete per dog. And there's a tremendous amount of factors and aspects that go on. And the dogs get a little bit overwhelmed, but you teach them to like, wait a minute, you got to stay engaged. This isn't, and you've got to believe that I know what's going on and teaching dogs to deal with uncertainty and gray areas and not implode is an important part of this. So once they get comfortable and this becomes a trust factor, even though in the beginning, 
there's an insecurity in it. You teach them to deal with that. You nurture them through it. And, and eventually you, you create a real mental toughness in the dogs that become profound when they compete at the highest level in any of these sports. And they're just a more well-rounded canine athlete. The, the next part I wanted to ask about is your red zone, the last 10, 20 feet of the blind. One of the things that I focus on in training is stopping the dog when it knows where the bird or bumper is. So like you've completed blind under control, life is good. And they're like, bang, there it is. Tweet, sit, and then pick it up. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any other suggestions you have to maintain control when that dog goes into hunt mode or or you're handling on a mark or what, whatever the case may be like if it's time to really buckle down tighten those screws and it's like I, you think it's over here i know it's not you've got to focus in how are you attacking that i would say in training because at the test it's like you're just hoping and praying that what you've done in training works so what are you doing I guess, I, yeah, both. Test. Let me give you an example, because we just did it last week, right before we left, before we broke for Thanksgiving break and in day school, right? At, I was right on uh, Mike Lardy's place, a place that I leased for the winter, where I can't remember what flight was there, but one of the flights were on that property. And we had a rainy day planned, kind of windy. We put a big tent up, and we did what we call a Chinese drill on land. It's a wagon wheel drill on steroids, but it was nine blinds, and it took... For 12 dogs, it took six or seven hours to complete. Oh. And I had at least, I think, three dogs that ran the Master National that did that nine series of blinds, which we treated a little differently. But the last four of those blinds were 350 yards, mm-hmm. you know, as far as we could go. And these dogs had never gone that far. And they were lining past piles of bumpers that they had just picked up. So there was a lot of, they didn't know where they were going. They were smelling a lot of things. And of, and these dogs, those Chinese drills on land are one of my favorite. They're great on the water too. But these dogs eventually, they were, and I use the word confused, not in a bad way. They were just like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and you do. So just tell me what you want me to do. And it develops kind of a natural compliance factor that and when people first look at it, they think, oh my God, my dog's going to get in so much trouble. It doesn't seem to, it doesn't typically happen that way. Now there are a few there when they if they don't stop, that's you know, that's a non-negotiable. They got to sit on a whistle. Sure. So I was not only these dogs are not only getting stopped on near the blind that they're about to pick up, they're winding and going by blinds that they previously picked up, but they probably didn't remember they picked them up. Because mm-hmm. we did five, you know, because nine blinds were a little bit too much to do all in one rotation. So we did five blinds in the first round and then four blinds through the gaps of those. And the the short blinds were still had still had bumpers down for most of them. For the younger dogs, the stakes were there, the bumpers were gone, but the center of the bumpers were still there. Sure. So there was a, tr- you know, and I told these folks, I would do this with 24 dogs. I'd run. 110 blinds in one day your brain i blow, <laughs> blow seven eight hundred whistles in one day i believe it ben and i are done yeah. that and maybe not that many but yeah. the only way you get good at the, doing this stuff is to do it so that's one of my favorites now i don't just start out with that because 
what I'm going to be doing over the course, and we're going to talk about our, the membership I've got going, is talking about building up at the beginning of the winter, re-refining re the fundamentals, and then taking it into some of these complex field scenarios, land tune-ups and Chinese drills, and, you know, and, and being able to execute great control without a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so... So, so that, those Chinese drills and those handling drills is where you're gaining that control at the end of the blind because, again, they think they're there. They may even see the pile, but you're casting off of it to dig back and go to the other blind. That's mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I got you. Absolutely. And you'd be amazed. Some of these dogs and one of the, one of the dogs, well, a year ago, I, I this dog has really left an impression with me. A year ago, this dog couldn't do three... 60 yard marks on a, you know, on a golf course and had just hadn't been educated and looked like a clown and looked and he, I'm looking at him now. And he did that nine leg Chinese rule a year later with somebody that's never run anything like that, even close. And I watched how he handled it. And he is just, they've end up kind of just giving you their soul and not in a bad way, not in a submissive way, just to like they become more of a team player. It's really one of my favorite things to do and to focus on. And so I'll be doing more of it. Very good. I, I taped this a little bit because I thought it was really good. I did some aerial diagrams of it. And, you know, these are the kinds of things I think people could do more of. And I, and I push people from all the venues to get outside of your comfort zone on some of these distances, make yeah. those endings hard, you know, plant single plant some of these birds some of your blinds without obvious markers you know in little cute little holes where you've got to you've got to you got to put their head on the bird you just don't get them 10 yards downwind of it let them win it you've got to finish the endings and once you get comfortable because the whole complexion changes in the red zone your whistles become more aggressive they're closer together all the momentum you use to get there now starts to work against you if you're not careful and i say to some of these folks you know you just got yourself a brand new sports car you don't pull in the driveway in sixth gear you got a downshift and you got to kind of come in and you got to you know everything you did to get there now changes just like it red zone does in, in, in the world of football you know the whole game changes when you're right near the goal line and this is just like that that's a, so a real passionate guy about that yeah those are great analogies and you met me and at five foot, four and a half inches tall, I had to be a better handler than, than guys like you. I had to be sharper because I couldn't see what you could see. So I learned to compensate. I could complain about it. I could complain about, oh, I can't see that far. I don't know. No. Or I could just push myself and get better. And so that's what I encourage you to do. I don't make the dogs as long as they stop. That's what I said. I'll deal with some cast refusals, some sloppy handling. But if you got to sit on a whistle, yeah, you sit on a whistle. And if you'll come in, you know, and you learn to, if control becomes a habit, you don't, you'll find yourself using very little pressure for dogs. It's the dogs that have been taught to see the blind at the end. And then, you know, they thought it's their job to find it. And now you can't get their control. Those are the dogs that get way more pressure than what I'm describing. Gotcha. That's cool. I could dive more into that because I feel like I have dogs that are, are like that. And it's how I did it when they were, you know, 
four or five years ago, you know, how I did some different things back then than I do now. And then now it's like, okay, I'm riding this rodeo and they're very talented. They're very good dogs. I love them to death, but they can give you a run for your money once in a while. Cause you're right. They think they know where they're going. Well, and we promote dogs that are self-confident. That's not a bad thing. Just that we need a little less. <laughs> well, I mean, and every quality has got a negative side to it. Sure. I mean, it's your greatest strength is your greatest weakness as well. If it's, if, you know, and so what do you, what do they say? They say that any quality taken to excess becomes a weakness. Well, there's a great example of that. That overly compliant dog sometimes doesn't have the, the get up and go to think on his own. The one right. that wants to think on his own too much doesn't want to handle but that's that's the nature of every sport, human and canine. Yeah. Trying to find that balance. Yeah. And one thing I want to double back on real quick, and then I want to talk about the retriever revolution and the no-no drill concept for our winter training that I want everybody to rehear. I want them to rehear. Pat came to the national, and his biggest thing that he took away is basics. The dogs and handlers that struggled were the ones that had maybe poor delivery of the bird, had loose healing and movement on the line and communication, had, you know, an in general lack of disciplined obedience and self-control of the dog, and then self-control of the owner, right, the handler. Because things aren't going perfect with the dog, the handler starts panicking. And so the analogy I would use is when I played sports, I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest, but my coach was very good at getting me to do the tackles right. So I played rugby. So if I didn't tackle right, because I was smaller than the guy across from me, I'd get hurt so I, my mechanics of how i'd hit people or how i would engage in the scrum or how i would steal the ball like all these things he just made me work on minutias until i couldn't screw it up i did it so much that i couldn't screw it up and it's muscle memory and then when you get literally kicked in the head your body doesn't know what it's doing but the muscle memory does and this so, is exactly the same. Exactly. It's the same thing, right? So when shit hits the fan with you and your dog at the line, your body stays in a more calmed or like special operators in war where they have done clearing a jammed pistol so many times that if they're getting shot at and their pistol jams, they don't freak out. They muscle memory takes over and they're able to keep performing at a high level. I liken that to the dog. If the dog isn't doing everything perfect, I can't start doing different things. I have to have that muscle memory to stay in control of the situation, regain control of the situation and move on. It really struck me when you said that was the number one thing you saw was the stuff that we all can do. It's yes. It wasn't the marking and it wasn't the blinds. It was right there at the line that people had a harder time with. And that's the stuff that we can do in our backyard, in our you know, soccer field. And then yes, you go out and train with your friends or groups or trainers. And it's like, it just went out the window for a lot of folks. I saw that too. It's just slow down and practice the basics because if your basics aren't there, when the going gets tough, 
it gets real tough. Jim Kappas, uh, one of the early professionals that I knew, he'd say, take care of the little things. The big things will take care of themselves. Yeah. That's an example of that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about the retriever revolution, Pat. And I'm excited because we're in winter training now. I get to hunt a little bit, but I'm in my winter mode. Let's talk about it. You know, my the December and January were my favorite months to train. I didn't feel the perfect. You were in New York. Yeah, hang on. Let, let's double back here a little bit. You weren't in central New York. I was freezing my butt off today. Well, yeah, I know we do, but I grew up in northern Indiana and I had my car hearts and I did, you know, Fair and enough. so some stuff I did in a, if I had to, I got in, I, I found a writing arena and I got indoors or, you know, you just, now I wasn't training 24 dogs at that time. I was training a couple, but, but as professionally, I mean, you know, as a professional, that was the that time of year where I could work on things that I didn't have the time to work on the rest of the year. I didn't feel the perfect, the pressure to get ready for six weeks from now, I got to have these dogs ready to run. So that off season time, I really would say, all right, here's the time for us to diagnose the things we need to work on. And it was the first thing we did. I did. It's the first thing I did when I was working with Mike Lardy and Ray and Hanjum was that early season meeting and we have that whole list of dogs and we'd start to, we'd write down three priority items. And so that's what started our early season. And the vast majority of those items were go stop and come mechanics. The stop mechanics I talk about are sit, everything to do with sit at your side in the field. The go is the commitment to go, you know, water commitment to get in the water, that kind of thing. And come is that red zone control at a distance. So almost every dog that fell into one of those three categories. So then we start to break down. All right. What is the, what are the earliest fundamental parts of these tasks? And so I'm going to be starting that here. Well, let me tell you about the retriever revolution. Yeah, it's, it's a membership program that we started this summer and we are launching to the general public in December. It's going to start with, a three-part no-no challenge. It's really based around all of the different no-no drills and the theory behind the no-no procedure, which is simply calling a dog back through the use of attrition to achieve a different goal. Typically, it's an initial line, but the no-no procedure is, is done, well, we use attrition in our casting all the time. In other words, we reel the dog in back to the spot and we make them repeat the task until they they give in and do it so there's a process that has to happen to teach a dog to thrive and understand you know being recalled if you just start doing it and if people then the dog gets all worried and doesn't perform you say well this dog can't handle that well the, the problem they can't handle it because you haven't prepared them for it sure. so this no-no challenge that we're going to be doing at the launch of this membership is going to really talk real specifically about the process of conditioning a dog to understand what it means to be recalled and how to prepare them for it and how to make them a little bolder and more resilient to that. It's a really valuable tool. So, and, and it's typically the refinement of getting an initial line on a retrieve. You think typically it's a blind, but in some situations, it's, a mark. it's even more important that you get the dog to go where he's told on a mark. It boils down to, once again, the communication that happens at your side. 
and the preparation for the dog to be trained. You know, the no-no part, just when you do these no-no drills, yeah, you teach them the parlor trick of jumping over a line of hay bales or uh, a park bench or a plastic pipe or a canoe turned upside down. But more than anything, you teach them to understand what it means to come back and try something else and not get overly worried about it. So that's going to, that, but that is part one of, we're going to do a three-day or, or three-part challenge, and we're going to have uh, a master class, uh, a Zoom call that people can ask questions, and we're going to explain and give them a feel for what the Retriever Revolution membership is all about. And what it's all about is me providing 40 years of my experience with a large library of information, videos included, and access to talk to me about training problems, setting up routines. I'll tell you, we started the membership earlier this year, and our first theme was line compliance. It was about, you know, all in the five-foot circle, all the things that go on, all the drills that, what does it relate to? Sometimes it's getting a dog to move willingly. Sometimes it's teaching them not to move at all. Bird watching mechanics. I mean, I, and we put it in the most specific fundamental details, as simple as it could be. And that's where I start with all this. Then we worked on improving stopping mechanics. Dave Roram was one of our guests. I'll have periodic expert guests that are going to talk about the subject of the month. And so we're going to have a Zoom call with a guest that everybody can ask questions about. So between picking a theme of the month or the theme of two months, first we had line compliance, then we had stopping mechanics. Then we spent two months on developing marking. And I said, this is only scratching the surface. I mean, I, and I had experts from, from interviews with Mike Lardy and Jim Van Egan and different diagrams, and we'll be coming back to marking over and over over the course of the next year. And marking theming is going to be another early season specific concepts. That's going to be, I think, February's material. So we pick a, a subject and I break it down to the simplest form. Also, the membership is designed to identify five different levels of people and dogs. Right, that was From the most entry level, dog may be still in basics, a dog just coming out of basics, to that mid-level transition dog, maybe a dog that's trying to be a master hunter, maybe is a master hunter and wants to be more successful there or wants, maybe wants to transition and run some qualifiers. Then we've got that young advanced dog, that all-age dog, maybe a person running amateurs and trying to dabble in opens. And then we've got the highest level is maintaining an older dog. I encourage you to identify the five, what level you're in, you personally, as well as what dogs you have. And the material is going to be catered to that level. And I'm going to steer you in that direction and try to build a, a path to success for each of these people and teach them the things they, that they just, they're going to make them better. And the things that we talked about that I saw that people would be more successful if they paid attention to at that master national. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the membership's going to have, you're going to get weekly emails and documents along with videos based on that theme. And that's going to, Robin sends them out every Sunday. And you're going to have access to a large library of 
all the master classes, everything is put on a program called Searchy. Is that, does the bomb proof basics that we discussed, is that in this as well? A bunch of that material. Right now, it's actually a separate course. Okay. But I use a lot of that in the training context. Very good. So when I have something, for example, you know, one of the things we're going to be doing in preparation for this big land tuna is going to be wagon wheel casting drill. So I go back and I grab that section from Bombproof Basics and reformat it, grab some material that I didn't use in Bomb, because I've got hundreds of, I've got hours and hours of material that I didn't use in Bombproof Basics that are valuable as well, that were filmed. So yeah, some of that material. The platform that it's on is called Searchy, and it it is a searchable platform. In other words, there is a search bar, and if you plug in Red Zone Handling, it's going to take you to every document that in the whole library and the timestamp and the videos that talk about Red Zone Handling. If you want to, so it's an easier way to find material that because how many times are you trying to say, well, I know he talked about it in that video, exactly. but you're going to. You're looking at an hour and a half program. And you said, when did they talk? Well, when did they talk about the Master National? Well, at the, you know, 16 minute, 32 second mark, this, and it's going to pop up. You just click on it. Boom, you're right there. So the whole library is in a searchable format. That's awesome. That's another really valuable tool. There's an opportunity to share videos and questions directly with me. I'm using a format called Video Ask, which is a video communication tool that I answer and you get an email with a video response and there's some communication. So, you know, if you're having some problems and you want to share with me a 60 second video about what's going on or just explain it to me, I can, I can respond to you promptly. So there's that opportunity. Is there a limit of how many people can join the revolution? Well, when we, 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 when we did our soft locks, we only offered it to existing clients but so i'm not sure exactly i mean we're going to make this open to the public and if you go to elite retrievers.com you can you can get into the well, you can join certainly join the no-no challenge and you can be on the early priority list waiting list to get the information when the you know when the course opens up in early december okay so what be we'll a, do two paths i'm gonna up. have i'm gonna have kevin make a note to yeah. put these in our notes so Earlier, we referenced Pat's YouTube channel, which I was a guest on. So, you know, I'm shouting myself out here. <laughs> I saw the video. It was pretty good. Thanks, bud. I thought so, too. So his YouTube, his website, and it'll be, will you let us know, maybe? Absolutely. I'll, Robin will share with you the links that you can put in the front end that people can just click on and go right to it. And they can read about it a little bit. And Robin can provide some tutorials on navigating the the membership site and people can get a feel for it they can sign up for monthly or they can sign up annually and so if it's something they want to try for a month uh try it if it's for you great if not but you can save money by by signing up annually absolutely so between well let me just kind of look at between the ability to well the weekly training trips and video tips and videos the access to the library video review, ability to ask me questions, the guest speakers, and just, and, and the feedback you of the membership telling me what can I do to help you more? And then me 
me designing the format based on what the audience is interested in. Well, I signed up, I think it was two winters ago. You had the, I think it was like six people every, yes, super informational. And one of the things that I want to hit home for people is I have goals for this upcoming year. They're big goals. They're goals that I never thought when I started doing this that I could hit. And and I am going to put re-educating myself. So taking this course, you know, if I can make if if it would be possible to Andy, like how does Bob Owens get better to be better for his clients and the dogs that are here so that I can continue to improve? And I think it. You know, taking a course like this and being involved in something like this, if it moves me one notch further, it's worth it. If it's five notches further, heck yeah. But I'm that's one of my goals is to re-educate myself. I haven't had time, which is a crappy excuse, but I haven't had time to sit down and reread, rewatch, rethink in several years. And so this year I've hit a lot of goals. I I'm not gonna I'm thankful and worked hard, but I want to get further along and be better. And so this is something that's like it, I'm I, it's gonna scratch an itch for me to to improve myself. Absolutely, you know, and it just just gives me an avenue to share information and to brainstorm with people because you know I learned from you guys as much as you learned from me. So that's that's really that goal. And you know I've just always enjoyed the coaching and mentoring of people. I mean, it's, it's, I coached a lot of people at national amateur championships and a lot of clients and I, and I run a day school program and I really truly thrive on, you know, making people better and helping them enjoy their hobby is really what it's all about and finding a better way to train dogs and, and a more, and again, this is about a, an efficient, humane way to, uh, to be a better partner and to be a better dog owner and handler and mentor. Absolutely. You, you know, you had touched on the Andy Atar and yourself, the seminar. Are there spots available that people can find that as well and join that? Is it closed? Uh, it's certainly not closed. Our handler list is closed, but uh, uh, the observer option is is available. And I tell you, a lot of people feel that being an observer, oftentimes they get more out of than actually being a handler. They're, they're more engaged in what's going on. It's going to be a four-day clinic. It's actually going to start out on Wednesday night, the night before the first is a Purina Masterclass that Andy and I will, will be doing together. And we're going to reflect on the evolution of the dogs. Let me see if I can see the title of it. It's, But it's really about, Andy and I talked about how the dogs have changed and has the training changed the dogs or have the dogs changed the training? Ooh. Uh-huh. Yeah, because that's a phenomenal discussion. When yeah, it, and that's it, really because the nature of today's retrievers way different than 35 years ago. They're I feel like they're softer. Absolutely. I feel like they got just as much drive, but they just they're they're a little softer. Yes. And so and and Soft, more sensitive dogs with the right idea are are or more user friendly for everybody. And we've 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 started to refine techniques that promote that. And those dogs are the dogs that hold together for owners, 
And when those dogs succeed, they get bred. And when they get bred, you make more dogs like that. It's not rocket science, but it, and it happens over the course of time, but there's a dramatic difference in, in the temperaments of today's retrievers from, and the techniques, but there's been a huge change in the style of, of training and coaching <laughs> humans. Yeah. yeah. You look at who just passed away, Bobby Knight, who was one of the hardest nose coaches, super successful. I grew up in Indiana. A good friend of mine played for him and coached with him. And we told a lot of stories. That was a tough era. Rex Carr, the guy that taught me. Some of the discussion we're going to have is going to be, all right, we're doing a lot of things for the better, but have we lost anything? Is there anything that we've lost? And do we, you know, or, or we want to regain or, or reflect upon? So it's going to be a great discussion. Andy and I have been friends since five years old. We went to kindergarten together. And we've known each other and uh, forever. And I drug him into this whole thing. So we have a lot of fun. We're very relaxed. So we're going to be a master class on Wednesday. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and, and Sunday is going to be a four-day clinic. We'll have a get-together either Friday or Saturday night with a Q&A, fireside Q&A, that will probably stream live or will at least film. It'll be a great event. We did it last year. And we focus on really a lot of these levels of dogs we talked about today. Very cool. Um, it'll be fun. We'll drop a link yes. to that as well. So anybody in the description of this podcast, there's going to be a bunch of links in this one so that if any of this sounds like something you want to dive into and learn more of, you don't have to Google search it. It's going to be right in the link of our description and make it super easy for you to, to follow up on Pat. In the beginning, before we started, you also wanted to give a shout out to a friend of yours yes. that just had some uh, high success. Let's talk about that. Well, I thought maybe everybody could hear me scream when I heard the national <laughs> champion awarded here in, 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 in Creswell, Oregon, the national, national Open Retriever Championship, which is typically the highest level retrievers could achieve. You know, it's professionals compete. It's the, you know, it's the top field trail dogs in North America with the top handlers in North America. And my good friends at, and, and from Colorado, Kenny Trot and Marcy Wright. Well, Marcy won the national horse tooth kennels, I guess is what their kennel name is. And Marcy is, was the fifth female in the history of, of field trials to win the national championship. And she won it with a, a young dog named Tabby that she started from scratch and it just, they're great people. They've, they've evolved. We've had discussions just like we had today, specifically about the evolution and changing of training techniques. And they called me on the way home and told me how important some of these lessons and, and, the, and how they've changed has led to that success, that they turned the corner. I know Kenny, a few years back said, Pat, he said, I'm getting to the end of these nationals, but I'm not finishing them and I'm not in a condition to win. He said, and I went out and, and consulted Kenny two or three different years. And he called and said, you know, that was the turning point in their career. And uh, it made, it really choked me up to hear me. And I was just another voice, but really good trainers, thoughtful people. And they said to me, he said, do you remember what you said? He said, somebody told you when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. The willingness to have an open mind and be willingness to change some of your thoughts and maybe question prior assumptions, looking for a better way is really what, you know, we continue to try and do and not get stuck in a rut and not just do what we did because that's what we did. 
And, and Kenny and Marcy are great examples. They felt they changed and made some adjustments in their program that led to her winning the, uh, the 2023 national championship. So great people, congratulations. Yeah. And it's just, it, it, I had that conversation sitting right at the same desk and both of us were crying and talking about it. Congratulations yeah. to them and to you. I mean, what a cool, you know, relationship to have in a, along their journey to success is, is fantastic. So that's really neat. Pat, I want to thank you again for being a part of our show. Like I said, it was really great to finally meet you in person down at the national and to have you on here to share your knowledge experience with everyone has been fantastic. And I highly encourage everybody to click the links in the description and check out the retriever revolution. I mean, no joke. 2024 is going to be a year for you and your dog. Yep. And if you've got any questions, just give us a shout out. If Robin can't answer it or I can't answer it, we will, we'll, we'll do our best to give you an insight into what's going to go on. And Bob, if you, if your hunting trip uh, works out and you can come to Boston, Thomasville, Georgia, come on down. We'd love to see you there at the workshop. You're going to have Jimmy and uh, Adam and uh, John <laughs> are going to be there. So we'll Double meatheads. <laughs> dumbing, dumbing down the crowd. <laughs> And I'm sure we'll be, we'll, there'll be some, some brown liquor on the back porch solving problems. So, you know, we, we've done a lot of that over the years, just talking at night, having a cocktail and just brainstorming about what we do. Enjoy it. I appreciate you very much. Thank you again for taking time out of your day to be with us. You guys are great. Take care. And thanks for, you, you, you do an incredible job there, Logan. Thank you. Hey, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in, let's go, join the community. We appreciate it and we'll see you there. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.